For too long, the pro-life movement has been shouting conclusions rather than establishing facts. Staying focused on the status of the unborn brings moral clarity to the abortion debate. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end those injustices. You have organizations out there like the Center for Bioethical Reform. The Center for Bioethical Reform. Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Organizations like the Center for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose. Abortion kills all kinds of people, so then all kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto. I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion. Today we were doing choice chain in downtown Regina. By the end of the conversation, she was completely pro-life. He then walked away 100% pro-life. Completely pro-life. We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to our defense. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. It means a lot to us that you are listening. That opening quote is a quote by Greg Cunningham as quoted in The Case for Life, which is a book by Scott Klusendorf, who is our guest for today. I will introduce him in a very short moment. But before that, how are you, Cameron? I am giddy. To be honest, I have the opportunity in just a couple minutes here to talk to a pro-life legend and a hero that I have consumed as much as I can from his written work and his presentations that he's given. I remember the first time I met Scott, I I was so nervous just because he was such a hero of mine. I'm a little bit giddy going into this interview, but I, I am so excited, Peter. How are you doing? Yeah, I, I'm also excited uh, for this conversation, and it's going to be a conversation that um, from everything I know about Scott Klusendorf, everything I've read, everything I've, I've heard, it's going to be that conversation that you listen to the end and then you push replay and then you listen to it again because of the information that he's going to share and the wisdom that he's going to provide from the, the vast amount of experience that he has working in the pro-life movement and, uh, and not just working in the pro-life movement, but teaching thousands upon thousands of people and, uh, and providing good, solid pro-life apologetics. But let me, let me dive in. Um, to the introduction. Actually, one more thing before that. Um, the Pro-Life Guys, I'm going to share this about this a little bit more later. We have joined Patreon. So if you want to get some exclusive merch and if you want to financially partner with a podcast that is doing what we can to equip uh, those around us to be culture shapers, equip those around us to have good and effective and winsome conversations about abortion, you can do that at patreon.com backslash Guys. Uh, or find out more information on our website um, to, to help us do some of the work that we're doing. So thank you so much for that. Okay, Scott Klusendorf. This man is one of the most prolific pro-life speakers, apologists, and mentors in the North American pro-life movement. He speaks around the world, not just changing minds himself by God's grace, but also training others to do the very same. He trains thousands of students each and every year to make a persuasive case for life as part of their world worldview training prior to college. And this includes uh, teaching high school students and young people through Summit Ministries and the focus on the Family Institute. Summit Ministries is where my wife first was trained uh, under Scott Klusendorf in 2012. 
Scott is the author of The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture, and a co-author of Stand for Life, A Student's Guide for Making the Case and Saving Lives. And these are two books that I've actually referenced a few times as I've prepared for podcast episodes, uh, just to make sure that I'm on the right page, getting the, 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 the correct and the best information. Scott is a graduate of UCLA with honors and holds a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University. And this is a, a quote I found from Chuck Colson, who's the founder, uh, who was the founder of Prison Fellowship about Scott Klusendorf. And this is what he said. Scott first grabbed my attention when Focus on the Family featured one of his presentations on its national broadcast. I was struck by his ability to communi- communicate truth so clearly and insightfully. I've heard many speakers who deliver excellent content, but few who can actually equip people to communicate their pro-life convictions to a secular culture. In fact, I was so impressed with Scott's talk that I phoned him directly to learn more about his work. After that, I scheduled him as a keynote speaker for our own Breaking Point conference. This is Scott Klusendorf. We are so excited to have him as a guest on our program, and we hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. Scott, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Peter. Great to be with you, Cameron. Yeah, we're so glad to to have you on. Now, you've been involved in the pro-life movement for several decades now. Could you go back to that, you know, those first few moments and share with us why and how you got started in the pro-life movement? Several decades. You're making me old already. Well, back when... Back when Noah was building his ark, I heard this presentation. (laughs) Well, actually, it started for me, uh, really, from the first time I had heard about abortion, which, ironically, was at a Christian concert. Uh, Today, you don't expect Christian artists to say much about abortion, but it was a different animal back in the 70s. And I went to this concert by a group called the Second Chapter of Acts, and they uh, had this song that Annie Herring had written called They're Killing Thousands. And it's a very haunting song. And in fact, your viewers ought to look it up or your listeners ought to look it up on YouTube. A powerful song. And they spoke very candidly about abortion. And so really from that point on, I was pro-life. The only difference was that I wasn't doing much about the issue other than going to a local pregnancy center banquet once a year and giving an obligatory 50 bucks. I really didn't do a whole lot. I was certainly pro-life in my worldview, but acting like I was pro-life was another completely different story. And then in November of 1990, I went to a presentation for pastors in Glendale, California, as, and I was at that time an associate minister at a church in Southern California. And I went to this thing expecting to see, you know, at least a hundred of my colleagues, whenever you had a pastor's breakfast, those dudes like to eat, they show up. You could be talking about basket weaving. They'll at least show up for the pancakes, right? Well, uh, I showed up and there were four other pastors there and their wives. So it was a very sparse crowd. But Greg Cunningham, uh, the head of uh, Center for Bioethical Reform, was the speaker that day. And he gave a very intelligent defense of the pro-life view. And I thought, I like this guy. He doesn't hurt the brain to listen to. Uh, And then, though, he did something that changed me forever, which you are well aware of at CCBR. He showed images of abortion. He showed an eight-minute video uh, that absolutely floored me. And I sat there and watched this thing, and I was just weeping on the inside. And I thought, I am no different than the priest and the Levite who passed by on the other side of the road. They say they felt pity, but that pity for the beating, beating victim, but they don't act like they felt pity. 
And I went home and I took that, that VHS tape he showed. By the way, VHS tapes were these rectangular things we used to put into a machine and watch VeggieTales on, you know, and Charles Bronson movies, whatever. But um, I went home and showed her that video. And she was very supportive and said, if your life is changing, I'm with you. And bottom line, six months later, I had left that pastoring position with the blessing of the church and was trying to figure out a way, how can I get involved helping pro-lifers communicate effectively on this issue? And th this was pre-internet day. You didn't have Google. You didn't have email. So that meant going down to the UCLA research library and pulling up microfish and trying to pull up books to order that wouldn't show up for three weeks. And uh, But I began reading everything I could get my hands on. I would hire book finders to find out-of-print books I needed and just began devouring material. And slowly but surely, uh, you know, inviting myself to speak, I would call up the local Rotary Club and say, hey, I know how you guys are. You meet every Tuesday and you're sweating bricks every week because you wonder who you're going to get to speak. I'm your man. So I would show up there carrying in a 27-inch solid-state TV that weighed like it was a truck. And I would set that thing up and show abortion footage to these guys while they're eating their strawberry waffles. I mean, that's how it was back then. My second pro-life event was a debate at Cal State Northridge in front of 650 rabid pro-abortion students. So I jumped right into this thing. And uh, I did not, at the time, know a fraction of what your listeners know right now on this issue. But I was convinced abortion is wrong and I had to do something and I didn't care quite frankly. And I just kept reading and studying and uh, that was it. That's how I got involved. And and that involvement story, I, I love it. I love the throwback. I remember um, I, older than, than I'd like to admit, I when my parents were, when, when my siblings and I were getting into school age stuff and the internet was just emerging, my parents thought that it was going to be a complete sham. They didn't think that it was going to last. And so they invested a huge amount of money in Encyclopedia Britannica. We have hundreds of volumes of encyclopedias that we bought and then a year later um we know how the internet went from there i i'm curious so in that that initial transition that powerful moment of the video kind of transforming your life for for so many people that get involved with ccbr they have a very similar experience i know that for myself it was in 2009 Stephanie Gray came to my university and played a, a similar video during a debate and that that rocked my world and for me my parents, my friends who were all supportive of, of the pro-life cause really thought that this was a, a passing phase. They thought, you know what, you'll, you'll go, you'll do one, out, one year of mission work or, or maybe you can do a, a two-week trip or something like that and that'll um, fulfill your, your kind of need to do something on this and then you'll go back to whatever you were doing before. Was there any, any kind of thought from the people around you that this was just going to be a passing phase? Was this even something that you thought, you know, this is what I need to dedicate my life towards? Or initially, was this just something that I got to do something right here and now and we'll see what happens later on, I guess? Well, uh, from my perspective, I was in for the long haul. Uh, now, people often say to me, Cameron, uh, why you know, how did God call you to this? How did you learn to hear the voice of the Lord? And I never did. I didn't hear a voice from heaven say, I want you to do this as you get the Monty Python descent of God's voice upon your life. You know, uh, I never heard that. Uh, I just did it. Now, I believe that's how God works. I believe that God selects people. They are drawn into this and you look back over it. And you say, oh, yeah, I see the hand of God at every step of this. But I think a lot of people 
uh, are timid about jumping into pro-life work because they think they they need God's special revelation to them in order to jump in. I believe that's bad theology. You don't need a special revelation from God to know that we ought to rescue those being led to the slaughter. You already have the command of Scripture. You don't need private revelation. So for me, it was just a matter of jumping in. Uh, I never doubted that it would work. Now, having said that, there were very dark days. Uh, there were, you know, the first four years I was trying to figure out how am I going to earn enough money to feed my family? And we were watching our bank account dwindle down uh, way past the zero level uh, into negative territory fairly substantially. But I never doubted this is what I was to be doing. And I was going to kick and claw till I found a way to make it happen. And I didn't have a platform right away. You know, a lot of people will approach me, as I'm sure they've approached you, and said things like, well, how do I become a person who can uh, be out influencing others? And they think that you just do that overnight. And it doesn't work that way. It starts by inviting yourself to the local uh, Sunday school class at your church, and maybe you're only talking to eight students. So what? Go do it. Uh, it may mean you're talking to a, a, a women's Bible study, or perhaps a men fellow, men's fellowship, or maybe 10 middle school students. I don't know, but you invite yourself, and you take the gigs you can get, and then you just keep building from there. It's a hard road, but it's a necessary road. And and it's a helpful road, right? Like like I, I think of some people who have gone straight from no pro life presence, and then they have some tr uh, transformative event, and they go straight in front of the the entire coliseum sort of thing, and everyone's <laughs> got their eyes on them. And right. that growth and development that happens in those church basements where you only get four people out, and two of them are your parents. And right, you know what? I I do this presentation, and I get the feedback, and I learn. Maybe my advertising was wrong. Maybe I'm just not a very good speaker at this point. Maybe maybe I need to learn more. Maybe I need to do that that research that really builds what I'm conveying. Maybe there are reasons why I'm not getting the turnout that I that I'm desiring. And maybe there's something that I can do to change that. Right? That that we actually need to read and prepare ourselves to give the best quality um, defense of of the pro life position, pro life worldview that we possibly can. Peter, you were going to jump in there. Yeah, no, I I was thinking about um, you know doing this sort of work as a fam uh, with a family. Um, you know, I've done internships. I've worked for CCBR as a single man. You can live in a closet anywhere. You can move at any point in your life, and you really, really don't need a, a lot of things. You don't need to settle down. Right. But but once you have a family, I mean, you have a wife that you need to support, um, and then children come along. I have two children at this point. Cam, you have one. And one of the things we often hear is, okay, like you've had, you've had your stint, you're single, you've done this. Um, you know, when are you going to move along and get a real job? Was, was that something you experienced yeah, as well? A real job. I certainly felt others communicating that vibe to me uh, because, you know, when you say you do pro-life work, it's interesting what you get in response to church going people. They look at you and they don't know quite what to do with you. They'll say things like, wow, that's interesting. That's um, fascinating. And you know right away they don't want to hear another word really about it. It's too weird for them. But yeah. for me, it was very clear what I wanted to do. And I knew what I wanted to do. And I was willing to be in it for the long haul. I wasn't thinking to myself, I need that break where uh, I'm suddenly on the main stage and all the world recognizes me. 
Uh, instead, I was thinking, okay, uh, right now they're only allowing me to speak to 30 students in the religious education class. They won't give me the assembly. But they will let me stay in this school all day long and speak to successive classes of 30 students. So at the end of the day, I've reached 400 kids. Uh, you know what happened speaking eight times a day uh, on many fronts where you start at 745 in the morning and you quit at three? Uh, you get pretty good at communicating your views. You learn to handle objections. You learn how to handle the hotheads. And that that is a, a, an experience that the person who just jumps into this and they're suddenly a superstar never gets. They don't cut their teeth in the real world. Uh, and I think what happens in a lot of pro-life uh, circles, we're looking for that celebrity context. We don't need celebrities. We need pro-life apologists who communicate what they believe and you leave the results to God. But you work on being the best you can at mastering the moral logic of the pro-life view and communicating it effectively. That's how you get long-term success. And I tell all the speakers on the LTI team, all the speakers that I mentor, they all start off doing the things I did. They aren't even put in front of an audience until they've read three or four books that they not only read, they have mastered. And I make sure they've mastered them because they get on a call with me and I ask the questions to make sure that they've uh, learned them. And I'm tough. I'm like a graduate prof. I'm going to make sure you have learned the stuff. Then they go start speaking to audiences of 10, 15, 20 people. And uh, then we, uh, you know, see about what happens from there. And I think we've been burned in the pro-life movement, pardon, pardon me for preaching for a moment, but we've had several high-profile failures that uh, hit the stage. The pro-life movement platformed these people largely because they were uh, in the past involved in abortion, and we immediately platformed them before their worldview has been solidified, and then we're surprised when they crash and burn eight months later. So I would rather see somebody cut their teeth doing the long-haul work and let the Lord put them in the limelight when the time comes. Exactly. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned LTI. And I want to want to dive into Life Training Institute in just a moment here. But, but if we take a, a look from 1990, you, you transitioned from being an associate pastor towards um, really dedicating full-time hours towards the pro-life um, mission, ultimately. And, and going from there to being the, the president and founder of Life Training Institute— Tell us about that journey from when, when you first got involved doing pro-life work in a full-time capacity. Where was your focus? Did you have a single focus? Did you have multiple focuses? Was it just, I'll speak about anything as it relates to abortion? Um, how did you kind of refine possibly your, your focus, your direction towards uh, an entity, uh, an organization like the Life Training Institute? Well, just to give you the history of my career in pro-life work, I immediately, upon hearing Greg that day, began hounding him. Anytime he was in, within 100 miles of me, I went to hear him speak. And I literally committed to memory the things he was saying. And by the way, there's no shame in that. The first level of learning is not becoming your own thought leader. I hate that term, thought leader. It needs to be retired. Uh, the first step in learning is copying. And you learn from the expert. As, a, as my mentor told me, find a good horse and ride it uh, and learn all you can from that mentor. So eventually, Greg put me on staff with CBR, and I worked with CBR for almost six years. 
And then in 1997, I moved over to Stand to Reason, which is a Christian uh, apologetics organization, and I became their director of bioethics and began trying to find a way to integrate pro-life thinking into the excellent field that was emerging at that time known as Christian apologetics. And it's a field that's still emerging and growing. What I noticed is that pro-life apologetics was not in the mix. And so I did my best to get it into the mix so that apologetics conferences and papers and writings would at least touch on that subject and, and saw a measure of success there. Then in 2003, uh, I began to realize that I was working for a rather narrow organization. And by the way, they needed to be narrow. They were a Protestant apologetics organization that was largely grounded in Reformed theology. That's great. I mean, that's my theological uh, background and in, in positioning. But it was hurting a little bit with my efforts to reach out and train Catholics. Even though I wasn't teaching on Reformed theology, a lot of people would think, well, wait a minute, it, you know, how, why are we bringing in this five-point Calvinist into this conference here? Uh, and even though my topic wasn't on that subject, it was still a barrier. So uh, with the blessing of STR, and Greg Kolkel, the president, understood completely, I left to form LTI which is more broad in the sense that I can talk to anybody, atheists, Catholics, Protestants, Mormons, it doesn't matter, because our purpose really isn't about theology per se, although our worldview commitments are obviously theological. But it, was, it allowed me to be much more broad in who I could speak to, and, and that's really the, the history of how I, I, I got to this. That, that's great. Thank you for sharing your journey, Scott. And now, as you've been doing this, as you've been working in the movement, um, you'll have undoubtedly noticed that the movement has shifted and changed and focuses have changed as well. And I think one of the best ways to understand the pro-life movement today is to have a bit of an understanding of the history of the pro-life movement to see how we got to where we are. And for someone like me, Scott, I've been in the movement for six, maybe seven years or so, and I don't happen to know that much about the history of the, the very movement that I'm in. So from your experience and from your from the knowledge you have, could you summarize the evolution of the pro-life movement and share a little bit about, all right, like what does that teach us about how we are to reach the culture today? Yeah, well, from the Canadian side, obviously, the, the main thrust of the pro-life movement started in 1988 with the Morgenthaler decision. That's really the catalyst for the movement. There certainly were pro-lifers in Canada before that, and I don't downplay their efforts, but the public... Uh, persona of the pro-life movement in, in Canadian uh, culture really did start uh, with the Morgenthaler decision in 1988. Uh, of course, in your case, your parliament could legislate on abortion if it chose to, uh, where in our case, what happened was in 1973, the Supreme Court, the, the uh, judicial branch of the U.S. government, co-opted the abortion issue from the other two branches, the legislative and the uh, executive, and basically told those other two branches, you have no say in this issue. So what that did is it launched the pro-life movement into a new phase. Now, just to give you the history of the U.S. Uh, pro-life movement first, and then we'll jump back to Canada. After Roe v. Wade, the pro-life movement here was really not divided politically. You had Democrats and you had Republicans. For example, Joe Biden signed on to the first few human life amendments and human life bills that were proposed in the late 70s and early 80s in, in the U.S. 
Uh, you had people like Jesse Jackson who were saying that abortion is the worst evil. It's worse than slavery. And he was very outspoken. But then, of course, the issue became politicized with the Democratic Party politics. And when that happened, pretty much this divided between the conservatives on one hand and, and liberal-leaning leftists on the other. And as a result, it became more politicized and was no longer a bipartisan issue. And that's where we are in the U.S. Um, so right now, I can't think of a single Democrat leader that would even admit to making room for a pro-life view to be uh, articulated in the public square. They'd be perfectly fine with shutting it down completely. That's how radicalized it's become over here. Uh, but it wasn't like that at the beginning. Then we went into what I will call the realignment phase. And that's where it clearly became a Democrat versus Republican issue with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. You then had the emergence of conservatives playing a role in the political square that they, they really weren't on the abortion issue before that. And there was a lot of hope early on that Roe v. Wade would be overturned. I mean, you look at it. There were legal scholars that were calling it a horrific decision. Even legal scholars who supported abortion said this is no way to do jurisprudence. This is no way for a court to legislate from the bench. And I, I mean, you were you had guys like Archibald Cox who supported abortion. You had people like John Hart Eli that supported abortion who called the decision a travesty. Uh, and there was, a, there was this sense that it would not sustain itself. It would be short order and we could get back to states individually legislating on the, on the issue. Well, by the mid 80s, late 80s, we knew that wasn't going to happen. And we knew we were into the long haul. Then we went into what I call the more dominant activism phase. You had the emergence of Operation Rescue, for example, that said, no, the way to end this thing is we're going to take direct action to the clinics themselves. And we are going to mobilize large numbers of people to pray and block access to clinics. And for a while, they got the numbers. In fact, I would say the high watermark of this was summer of 1991, what was known as the Summer of Mercy in Wichita, Kansas, where you would have outside George Tiller's clinic, thousands of people uh, gathered. In fact, it became so large, the number of people coming to, to Wichita, that it looked like this was going to really be a movement that went nationally. And then all of a sudden, you had a number of high-level re religious leaders uh, conservative religious leaders who pulled the rug out from underneath the activists, and that movement collapsed. And as a result, the next phase was, well, let's redefine what it means to be pro-life. Uh, let's redefine it to mean care for the mothers. Let's de-emphasize abortion and talk about the services we can render to women. Let's talk about how abortion isn't in their self-interest. And let's try to appeal directly to the mother and kind of just get away from the nasty activist side of things. Well, of course, what that did is completely relativize the pro-life message. Look, abortion is not wrong because it harms women. It's wrong because it intentionally destroys an innocent human being. Now, there's nothing wrong with talking about how abortion can adversely affect women, and we should talk about that. But that is not our primary message. That, in turn, led to what I believe we're in now, which is the apologetics moment, where we are having to make our case and 
make it well to people who not only think our ideas are mistaken, but who think our ideas are dangerous. And I think we're coming into a new phase of that apologetics moment uh, where we now have to deal with a cancel culture. We have to deal with those who have pretty much in their opposition to us adopted a religious mindset. And, and that's a whole new question we're going to have to explore here. We need the arguments. We need the pictures. Uh, absolutely. But what do we do with people who oppose us pretty much for a strictly religious view? And that's that's a whole nother thing. People haven't been inclined to think of leftist politics as a religion. They've uh, been in, they've been inclined to think of it as a secular outworking of a materialistic worldview. Well, it is that, but it's now taken on a new dimension. People hold these views religiously when they oppose us. And how do we communicate in that environment? So that's the new challenge in front of us. That's kind of my short history. And and that history really opens, I'm sure, a lot of the audience's mind who have probably seen bits and pieces. Maybe they've read a book about um, the American abortion wars. Maybe they've they've checked out some articles from our colleague Jonathan Van Maren, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like what you mentioned at the end of this this apologetics era, and and you've got this great quote from from one of. No, I'm not even going to say one of, by far, my my favorite apologetics book. Your your case for life is the one that I I recommend to everybody. Um, I absolutely Thank love you. it. You've got this great line in it. Um, For too long, the pro-life movement has been shouting conclusions rather than establishing facts. And I think this is this is perfect to think about when it comes to um, this this age of apologetics, where we need to really connect with the people that we're talking to in meaningful conversations, and the role that the the facts of prenatal development, the facts of what abortion does to a preborn child, through both imagery and explanation the role that has in actually changing people's minds beyond just the comfortable, I want to stand on the, on the side of the road, not engage with anybody and just have a, a sign that says, mm-hmm. love them both. Obviously, we need to love them both. But the role that direct engagement really plays in changing mind by mind. I, I'm sure that you've seen this on countless occasions, not only in conversations with pro-life leaders, but also people who are the armchair critics of the pro-life movement wanting this silver bullet approach. If, if we just devise the right billboard and get enough of them out there, then everyone changed their mind. Right. Whereas, well, yeah, your, your focus with, with speaking and equipping apologists is that, that this is down in the trenches, right? We, we actually need to, to do the dirty work of having the conversations, having yes. the personal interactions, right? Exactly. And by the way, that quote you mentioned that too often we are shouting conclusions rather than establishing facts. That's Greg Cunningham's quote. I don't want to take credit for that quote. That's him. Uh, I agree with it completely. Uh, But yeah, that's exactly it. In fact, I think what has happened, the pro-life movement by and large has adopted a marketing approach. They're they're thinking, Mm -hmm. okay, what can we do to get people to like us? And if I can quote Greg again, Uh, He makes the point that liked social reformers are seldom effective and effective social reformers are seldom liked. And there's a lot of truth to that. Now, we don't want to be unduly offensive. Uh, Our message is controversial enough to many people, but we can't hide from the fact that there's a truth element, a core to our message that must be communicated. And we cannot change our strategy for communicating it based on some marketing hope we have that we'll get enough people to like us. That's not how social reform works. In many ways, we have to communicate unpopular truths 
whether people like them or not. And one of the mistakes we make is I think we think that we have to change people's minds on the spot. And the great debater, William Rusher, in his book, How to Win Arguments More Often Than Not, makes the point that arguments are seldom won on the spot. I mean, I mean, you guys are married. You know what I'm talking about. When you're having a, a, a discussion with your spouse and she is right and you know she's right. Do you slap yourself on the knee and say, honey, I'm so glad that Jesus put you in my life to straighten out my twisted thinking. Is that what you do? No, that's not what any of us do. We have a few days of passive aggressive quiet in the home while we process everything and then things work out. And, and what I think Russia is getting at here is that people are not going to immediately fall on their knees in front of us and say thank you. Uh, but the things we put into them, as my friend Greg Kokel points out, they're equivalent to dropping a pebble in their shoe. They wear on them and wear on them until they have to stop and deal with it. And I get a lot of feedback from people who say, I heard you speak here. Uh, I was impressed you knew your topic, but quite frankly, it took me a while to come around, but it, I, I just couldn't escape it. And now here I am. So I think we need to be open to this isn't a quick fix. This is about planting ideas. And I'm, you know, I'll just be honest with you guys. I'm going to be dead and gone before this fight is won. Uh, that's, that's a fact. And uh, I'm not looking to tell people you're going to be the generation that ends abortion. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. This could be a very long haul. And the worldview structures that brought us abortion in the first place have been present for over 400 years. This stuff dates back to the Enlightenment. If you go back to Old Testament ethics, moral truth was real and knowable. It was grounded in God's holy character expressed through his law. If you go to the Greek thinkers, objective truth was present in the soul, and we ought to cultivate virtues that are uh, help the soul flourish according to objective ideas of goodness and badness. If you go to the New Testament, you have the same thing happening. You have objective truths that the believers ought to live out through the power of the Holy Spirit in their daily lives. You see it in the, uh, the Middle Ages. Uh, Thomas Aquinas spoke about cultivating properties of the soul that reflect our status as image bearers. Up through that time, the Middle Ages, moral truth was real and knowable. But then comes the Enlightenment. And at that point, everything changed. Because what happened is, if you couldn't taste it, touch it, feel it, see it, or hear it, if it wasn't empirically measurable, it didn't count as real knowledge. Well, morals are not something you empirically measure. Uh, trying to empirically measure moral is, as my colleague Greg Kokel says, trying to weigh a chicken with a yardstick. It's the wrong tools you're bringing to the fight. And what happened was, moral truth got reduced to the realm of subjective feeling. And then, of course, you get the postmodern turn now, where everything is reduced to your individual language communities. And we wonder why the culture has a hard time when we say it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Uh, they're interpreting that mark, that remark, through 400 years of philosophic earthquake that has happened. And this is why some pro-lifers, I think, are far too impatient. They say things like, well, we haven't ended abortion uh, we've had abortion here for almost 50 years since Roe v. Wade. The pro-life movement is a total failure. we got to redo everything. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Your lens is too short. Uh, you aren't seeing the long haul here. 
This is going to take time. These ideas have been assimilating through our culture for over 400 years. They're not going away tomorrow. I, I really like that you you bring that up, and that's one of the reasons that I really appreciate the fact that the organization I work for, CCBR, uses the images because so many yes. people have a cloud of rhetoric that they're working from. They have their, their worldview that um, they're working from, and the images cut right through that. I mean, they make the argument for themselves way before I can even have a chance to open my mouth. And, and another thing that I appreciated is... Um, the, the fact that you said that we're putting a pebble in people's shoe, we, we, we want them to change their mind instantly, but that's not often what happens. Mm -hmm. And being an apologetic uh, focused podcast, that's one of the things we want to, to, to really highlight is that, um, you know, you don't have to go out there and change everyone's mind. And, and if you haven't changed everyone's mind, you are a complete failure through that hour of conversations, but you're going out there and defending and protecting those preborn children. And you're, you're getting those people to think about abortion, think That's about right. what you said, think about the images they saw, think about how you treated them. And, uh, and that's something that, that percolates in their mind. That's something that God uses to change people's hearts and minds. Now you mentioned, uh, way earlier, Joe Biden and a little bit of his voting history. And that was fascinating to me, especially considering the fact that he is the head of an extremely pro-abortion uh, Democratic Party at this moment. And, uh, and one thing that fascinated, fascinated me uh, through your last election cycle is that there was a group of evangelical Christians who started this campaign with a website uh, calling for signatures. They were called the Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden, headed by Richard Mao and the likes. And, yeah. uh, and they were talking about you know, we need to, to address poverty and health care and people need to stop smoking and we need to address racism and all of these things. And they implied that for us to be consistent pro-lifers, um, we can't just be one issue voters. We can't just have abortion on the top of our minds, but we need to focus on a whole bunch of other policies, uh, a, f right. a whole bunch of other of these things. And a statement on their website re read, for, the, for these reasons, we believe that on balance, Joe Biden's policies are more consistent with the biblically shaped ethic of life than those of Donald Trump. Therefore, even as we continue to urge different policies on abortion, we urge evangelicals to elect Joe Biden as president. And this is a mindset that other Christians have as well. Scott, I know you've you've interacted with them as well. The fact that, OK, so if you are actually pro-life, if you want to be consistently pro-life, you need to vote and, and support X policy and Y policy and Z liberal policy instead of just focusing on the one issue of abortion. H how would you respond to this? Well, the problem, the fundamental error there is they create a false sense of moral equivalency. Not all evils are bad. And Catholic moral theologians make an excellent distinction we would all do well to copy. They make a distinction between contingent evils and what they call intrinsic evils. Intrinsic evils must always be opposed. They're evil on the face of it. For example, rape, murder, and abortion would be thrown into that category. Contingent evils are things that may be wrong, but it depends on their context. For example, war, or maybe capital punishment, or things that contribute to poverty. And the failure to draw that distinction leads to groups like evangelicals who claim to be pro-life supporting a guy like Biden. Look, a world leader who had an excellent health care policy, who had an excellent uh, education policy, an excellent economic plan, but thought it should be legal for men to beat their wives is somebody we need to reject on the face of it. 
You can't just lump all those things together and pretend they're all morally equivalent. No, they're not. It's the failure to make that distinction between intrinsic evils and contingent ones that lead to people like Richard Mao saying the kinds of unbelievably foolish things he does on the issue of abortion. And that's the problem we face. The other half of this is the unfair expectation that pro-lifers need to take on all these other issues to have credibility. Look, does anybody go to the pro-choice movement and say, well, if you were really for choice, what are you doing about school choice? What are you doing about education choice or economic choice? No, nobody does that for them. Nobody goes to the Canadian Cancer Society and says, how can you claim to be a healthcare organization when you only treat one disease and not many? What are you doing about lupus? What are you doing about heart disease and diabetes? And what are you doing about the poor health of school children. Nobody says that about them. But they come to pro-lifers and say that because we oppose the intentional dismemberment of an innocent human being, we are therefore responsible to fix everything wrong with society. That's baloney. I reject the premise and I won't even go there. I don't even waste my breath trying to say, oh yes, we do care, though we do. The fact is, their objection is false on the face of it, and it ought, we ought to push back strongly against it. As Christians, we will care about many issues. We will care about sex trafficking. We will care about immigration policy. We will care about the poor. But it doesn't follow from that that the operational objectives of the pro-life movement must also be broad and inclusive. That's an unfair demand. They want broke pro-life organizations to spread their resources, their scarce resources, even thinner, fighting every injustice under the sun, something they don't demand of any other uh, cause-oriented organization. It's completely unfair. I will not have any of it. Pro-life means you, you oppose the intentional killing of an innocent human being in the womb. That's what the definition has always meant. And I'm not going to let others get away with redefining what we are and what we're about. And the first question out of my mouth when I hear this nonsense is, tell me why, because I oppose the intentional killing of an innocent human being in the womb, I have to take responsibility for fixing everything wrong with society. Imagine an ER doctor graciously saves the life of a drug addict. Is that doctor responsible then to pay for the recovery treatment that patient's going to need going forward? Is he responsible to get him a job so he's not prone to go back into addiction? Is he responsible to pay his rent? Is he responsible to provide for his health care? No. The doctor did an amazing thing saving the patient's life. That's enough. And it's enough for us to be about saving children in the womb. We don't need additional jobs. We need additional support. And people like Richard Mao ought to be giving it to us instead of giving us a backbreaking job description no human being could fulfill. Exactly. It makes me think of a conversation I had with uh, an older gentleman during my internship, actually, way back in 2012. Um, I was having this conversation and he was blaming pro-lifers for all of the problems in the world. If you care so much, then why haven't you fixed the, the foster care system? Why haven't you fixed third world hunger? Why haven't you fixed um, human trafficking and all these different things? And and as much as, as advocates, we try to be mm -hmm. compassionate. We try to have charity in our delivery. I snapped on this guy. I, I, I just snapped right then and there. And I said, dude, it is so convenient to not be a Christian. It, yeah. Like There are so many reasons to not be a Christian because... What you're suggesting is that if you don't hold that it's wrong to intentionally rip apart tiny human beings in the womb, 
then you are off scot-free. You have no responsibility, mm-hmm. no need to fix any problems. And you just get to sit in the, in the, in the yeah. comfy armchair and direct around these run ragged pro-lifers who are desperately trying to uphold the barest minimum mm-hmm. of human decency that we're not going to rip apart a completely defenseless human being. That's right. And, and just like calling him out on this. And, and at the end of my ramble to him, he was like, um, I think I'm going to go talk to your friend over there. And I was like, no, yeah. dude, if you're, if you're going to talk to anybody, you're going to talk to me and you're going to talk through why it is yeah. my fault that everything is happening and why you have no responsibility whatsoever, simply because you don't care or you're not passionate. Right. Like, yeah. Sure sometimes, sometimes I'll call their bluff. I'll say, okay, if pro-lifers did everything you're demanding of them, would you join us opposing abortion? Oh, no, it's a woman's fundamental right. Okay, your whole objection was a farce to begin with. It's a smokescreen to hide your true position. That's all this is. Exactly. And I'm sure you've you've heard this on, on numerous occasions. If, if we think about this, again, going back to these Christian audiences, and not that, not that I want to rail too much against Christian audiences. I know there's a ton of churches that are working very, very hard to alleviate a ton of, of pain and suffering, including on the abortion issue um, worldwide. And I, I think that our pastors and priests get a... a painted with a very broad strokes often when, oh, nobody ever preaches from the the pulpit about abortion, that kind of thing. I'm sure that you've heard on a number of occasions, and I'm sure that um, internally your blood has boiled a little bit about, I'm just not passionate about the pro-life cause. You know, at, at our church, our passion is XYZ, something other than the abortion issue. And while, like you said before, that that this is something that, yeah, there's an awful lot of things that we need to be trying to resolve in our society. There's a lot of problems in the world, obviously. We need people attending to them. What is your go-to response when somebody just tells you, you know what, Scott, I'm so glad that you're doing pro-life work. I'm just not passionate about it. I'm, I'm not going to get involved at all. I'm going to stick with um, the other, I'm, I'm not going to label one because I don't want to <laughs> crap on any particular cause out there, but, but what is your go-to to try to invoke a little bit more passion or suggest a passion isn't actually a relevant factor? This isn't, I really want to be doing pro-life work. I'm sure there's been lots of days when you would rather do something other than pro-life work. This isn't about sure. passion, is it? Well, first of all, I can draw a fair distinction between those who have a different ministry focus than I do, and Mm. those who are using a so-called lack of passion to avoid doing anything on the pro-life issue. So the first question becomes, since when does my lack of passion relieve me of my responsibility to address injustice? Uh, If our culture came to allow wife beating, would it be okay for me to say, you know, I'm just not that passionate about that, so I'm not going to lift a finger to stop it. I I would be roundly criticized, and rightfully so, if I took that view. So it's it's not going to fly. We have the command of Scripture to rescue those being led to the slaughter. We're not told, oh, and only do it if you feel it in your bosom. Uh, No, that's not the way it works. So that's the first thing I would point out. The second thing I would point out is that, yes, we all have different ministries. And look, if I'm talking to somebody that they've devoted their life to stopping sex trafficking, I'm not trying to talk them out of it. But when a church says we're not going to do abortion because it's a distraction from our main area of focus, I simply respond to them by saying, do you believe the Great Commission? Do you believe that should be the mission of the church? And of course, any church that says no 
uh, has no clue what a church is because Jesus says in Matthew 28 what the church is to be about. We're to go into the world, all the world, and make disciples. What does it mean to make disciples according to the text? It's to teach people all that Christ has commanded them. What is one of those commands? We're not to shed innocent blood. What is abortion? The shedding of innocent blood. Therefore, abortion relates to the Great Commission responsibilities of the local church, not because I say so, but because Jesus says so. So that's my first go-to response. Do you believe the Great Commission? Because if you do, then there is a role for the church to play. Now, I'm not saying a church must preach about abortion every Sunday, but to say you're not going to do anything on grounds that you don't want to be distracted because it's not your passion, that's not going to fly. Yeah, no, that that's right. Um, on that same topic, you uh, you speak at high schools, you speak at uh, at different ministries. You actually, uh, just a, a side note here, in 2012 at Summit Ministries, you did a presentation and my wife was in the audience. And uh, when I mentioned to her that I was, I'm speaking with Cla Scott Klusendorf today, she had to remind me that and she thought it was super cool. So um, <laughs> God bless her. Yeah. I'm glad she let you come on the program with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, she, she's been impressed ever since. Um, now she was pro-life. She, she came from a pro-life family and uh, was against abortion. But I'm sure that when you come to these audiences, you... Um, you know, a lot of Christian leaders, they, they like to assume that all of their audience and all of the youth mm -hmm. in their audience are completely pro-life against abortion. Um, you know, that's not really the thing to discuss. We need to discuss how to fight abortion. Um, but I'm sure you come to audiences where some of the some of the audience does support abortion, whether completely, whether in particular circumstances. So when you're approaching a presentation um, that's specifically apologetics, specifically how to defend the pro-life position and defend and protect pre-born children. How do you, how do you approach these sorts of presentations with the, the, the reality that there are people in your audience who do support abortion? Well, I think we can do a presentation that speaks to both groups. We use images to change how people feel about abortion we use facts and arguments to change how they think, and both are vital in changing how they behave on the issue. So when I give a pro-life apologetics presentation, I'm trying to hit a number of objectives. Number one, I'm trying to defang the hardcore pro-abort activist, to give them something to think about that kind of shocks them out of their uh, arrogant, uh, angry position, and at least create a little breathing space interrupt their, their cocksuredness, so to speak. For the person who is kind of just not interested, I want to reawaken in them their moral sensibilities. I want to reawaken their moral intuitions. And this is where images uh, are so crucial. I remember um, reading about Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War. Uh, Frederick Douglass, the black abolitionist, came to him and said, Mr. President, your arguments for the humanity of the slave are stellar. They're impeccable. No one can refute them. And everybody's yawning. Nobody cares. Mm -hmm. What the nation needs is not just good argumentation, though we need that. We need the moral conscience of the nation reawakened. And it wasn't long after that you saw abolitionists begin circulating the earliest photographs of slaves that had been beaten. That one picture, for example, that black and white photo of the black man with a scar running all the way down his back. These pictures were powerful. 
and reimagining the debate over slavery in the American public's mind. And so images do that. And the most common thing I get from students in that field or in that, that category is, wow, uh, we, we just feel so bad that we didn't care before. And it wasn't my words that brought about that change. It was the imagery that changed how they felt. Then the facts and arguments the beauty of that is a lot of people want to know that the pro-life position is credible. Am I going to give up too much intellectual real estate if I take this position? And they need confidence that their position is true and reasonable to believe. So if you're doing a presentation that changes how people feel, gives them facts and arguments that make them confident that they can accept that viewpoint and not be uh, an academic outcast, and then you give them the motivation to do something on the issue, You've won. Your presentation has hit the benchmarks it needs to hit. And when we give presentations that hit those benchmarks, we're really reaching all three groups. Exactly. And those three groups are so essential. And and they honestly, from my experience, and, and I'm, I'm sure that you've given countless more presentations than I have, um, that, that you see those demographics in all of your presentations, generally speaking, I'm sure that the number of times, even in, in the last 10 years that I've been giving presentations for CCBR, the number of pastors that I've sat down with and say, oh, abortion is not an issue in my community. Uh, we're, we're not worried about this. And, and how so much of the first step towards mm -hmm. transforming the heart of America is educating pastors. Because I've met with so many pure-hearted pastors who genuinely believe that their congregation is 100% against abortion, that this is not a necessary topic even to talk about, not only pastors, but also principals of Christian high schools, that sort of thing. And, and just the importance of outlining to them the importance of not only conveying the pro-life message for the, the students that are not supportive of the pro-life worldview, that, that are in Christian schools, that are members of Christian churches mm -hmm. that don't support the Christian worldview, but also people who support the Christian worldview or the, the pro-life worldview for bad reasons, as it were. Some We, we talk often in, in presentations that I give about bad or inadequate reasons for being pro-life. And I'm curious what your experience has been in those conversations with, with pastors and helping them to understand. We, we have a number of pastors and a number of teachers and principals who listen to this podcast and maybe a, a message to them about the importance of getting good quality pro-life apologetics and even even the the foundations of the pro life worldview into their congregation into their school to make sure that their assumptions become correct that that their mm -hmm. students that their congregants are actually rejecting the pro life uh, pro abortion worldview well assuming the pastor or christian leader is with me philosophically on the issue meaning he concedes that uh, pro life matters and that abortion is wrong my next question is what does a pro life church look like what should it be doing? And of course, you get crickets. They have no idea. Mm -hmm. So then I go ahead and tell them what it ought to look like. A pro-life church ought to do three things. Number one, it needs to preach, teach, and counsel that abortion is a sin. It's a sin that intentionally kills an innocent human being. Uh, number two, the church needs to minister to the millions of Americans and Canadians who have been wounded by abortion and need healing. How many people in our churches have ruled themselves out for effective ministry because there's a ghost of a dead child lingering in their history? And the answer is a lot because I've talked to them. The third thing a church needs to do, and almost nobody is doing this, 
They not only need to preach, teach, and counsel that abortion is wrong, they not only need to minister to those men and women wounded by it, they need to equip their people to engage people who are unchurched. Everybody ought to know how to make a one-minute defense of the pro-life view. So suppose it's Christmas and your Aunt Betty comes to visit you from Toronto. And she's not conservative in her political views. She is not a Christian. In fact, she thinks that uh, Trudeau is doing a great job for the most part, and she doesn't understand why you're even concerned about abortion. And as you're sitting there in Calgary eating your, your turkey dinner, she looks at you with a puzzled look and says, now, why are you pro-life? Well, here's what you need to be able to say in a minute or less, Aunt Betty. I'm pro-life because it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. And the science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like these skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member, even though you had yet to grow and mature. And you know what else, Aunt Betty? There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you back then. There's differences, but they don't matter. There's a difference of size, a difference of level of development, a difference of environment, meaning where you were located, and a difference of degree of dependency. None of those four differences are good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. Now, I did that in under a minute, but you also notice I didn't cite any Bible verses. But did I communicate a biblical worldview? The answer is yes. Did I put a pebble in Aunt Betty's shoe? The answer is yes. Does that mean she's going to fall on her knees and confess she was wrong? No, but I've given her something to think about. And when we have church members who don't even know where to begin answering the question why they're pro-life, the church has got to take a role in equipping them to do that. Exactly. And and I love the way I, I've always loved your your kind of elevator pitch, one minute explanation of the pro-life worldview, because it also shows how reasonable the worldview is, that this isn't something radical. And, and not that you want to make Aunt Betty feel terrible about this, but who's holding the ra the radical worldview? Who well, is not it? us? <laughs> not, yeah. not us. <laughs> um, yeah. And and so building on that, I'm, I'm sure that in your presentations with um, high school students and university kids and and all that kind of thing. You've heard a ton of different um, arguments in favor of the pro-choice worldview. And, and a question I love asking apologists, because I get asked at pro-life presentations all the time, Cam, what is the strongest argument for the pro-abortion worldview? Or is, what is the most compelling argument for the pro-abortion worldview? And, and honestly, I have a hard time answering it because obviously there's nothing that compelling because I'm still a pro-life speaker and I, I'm, I'm still doing pro-life work. So there's mm -hmm. nothing that, that's been compelling enough to change my mind. When you're at um, pro-life venues and people ask you that question, what is the most compelling or what is the hardest pro-abortion argument to answer? What is your go-to answer? And maybe after that, a little bit of the, the, the good, bad, and the ugly, the funny pro-abortion arguments that you've heard from students through the years. I, I'd be very curious in, in the ones that may stand out in your mind. Yeah, well, I think uh, pro-lifers make a mistake if they publicly say there are no thoughtful people on the other side of this issue. Uh, and I, I think they're mistaken when they do that. I've heard pro-life leaders almost openly mock the other side as if they have nothing thoughtful to say and they're nothing but a bunch of stupid people. I will warn your listeners, if you have that attitude, you are going to encounter someone smarter than you that, that's going to throw you for a loop. And there are some thoughtful people out there. Uh, now, they're mistaken 
but we need to take the time to engage their arguments and show why they're mistaken. Uh, I think the two strongest pro-abortion arguments are David Boonin's desire argument and Judith Jarvis Thompson's violinist argument. The, I think those are the two that command the most territory philosophically. Uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson bodily rights argument, very simply, it says even if the unborn are human, and even if they are a person with a right to life, they do not have the right to use the body of the mother against her will to sustain their own lives. She may withhold that support if she wishes. And she tells the fable of you wake up one morning, find yourself surgically connected to a world famous violinist who's been put there by the Society of Music Lovers because he has a deadly uh, kidney ailment and he needs your blood type for nine months, after which he'll be cured and you can detach. And Thompson says, imagine you wake up in the hospital and the hospital staff says, we're really sorry this happened to you, but we searched all the databases worldwide. You're the only one that can sustain him. And we know it's an inconvenience, but if you detach, he dies. Therefore, you're stuck. And then Thompson says, it would certainly be nice if you let yourself be used that way, but must you? Now, that ought to throw you back a little bit. If it doesn't, you're not understanding the intuitive force of her argument. Uh, it's a pretty powerful argument because she's looking us in the eye and she's saying, pro-lifer, I will grant your major premise that the unborn are human with a right to life and you still lose. Here's why. So where do we begin to kind of just work through this? I, I won't take a lot of time on this. I'll just give you a couple of bullet point responses. If being hooked up to a stranger violinist is morally parallel to a mother being hooked up to her own child, I think her case wins the day. But if those parallels break down, I think her case collapses in ruin. And I think those parallels break down. First of all, what is killing the violinist in this analogy? His underlying pathology. Uh, what kills the abortion? Or what kills the child in abortion? An intentional act of killing. Look, it's one thing to withhold support from a dying patient. It's quite another to slit his throat in the name of withholding support. I think Frank Beckwith puts it real well. Uh, calling abortion merely the withholding of support is kind of like suffocating someone with a pillow and calling it the withdrawing of oxygen. Uh, there's a whole lot more going on here than simply withholding support. I would also point out that the very thing that makes it plausible in Thompson's universe to detach, name, namely that this is a stranger unnaturally hooked up to you, is precisely what is not the case in the mother's relationship to her own child. If the unborn doesn't belong in the mother's womb, where does it belong? I don't think Thompson adequately addresses uh, that question. So there's just a couple of things uh, I would point out. Look, it's one thing to say, I'm not going to let you use my blood type for a blood transfusion, even if it heals you. But it's quite another to intentionally kill you because you need me. So, Scott, I'm sure that you've heard this a uh, number of occasions in, in your talks with high school and university students, this idea of the IVF clinic, this, this notion in which you could either save a five-year-old child or five embryos in a Petri dish. And this mm -hmm. was kind of trotted out as the new persuasive argument that will undo the pro-life worldview. And, and I'm sure that you've heard it before. How would you go about navigating and explaining that in a way that, that demonstrates not only the, the failings in the analogy itself, but how to respond to that, I guess? Well, the first thing I do is make their argument stronger than they presented it. I would say, let's say it's a thousand frozen embryos or a six-year-old girl. Uh, what, what then? 
All right, well, first of all, the first point you want to do is make the observation that this analogy has nothing to do with abortion. Who I save in the IVF clinic is about who I ought to save. It's not about who I get to intentionally kill, which is what abortion is about. So the analogy doesn't justify abortion at all. At best, it's a thought experiment about who we ought to save. Uh, imagine that we're all in the same studio and the building's an inferno, and I can save both of you or my daughter, Emily Rose. Who am I? Who's going to toast? You guys are gone. I like you, but I'm saving her first. It doesn't follow, as you would point out, that because I save her first, that those left behind are not fully human. So the analogy falls apart. Look, the Secret Service uh, will take a bullet for the prime minister. The Secret Service will not take a bullet for the ordinary Canadian citizen. Does it follow the ordinary Canadian citizen has left less humanity than the prime minister? No, it just means that losing the prime minister has greater consequences. So they save him first, or they save him instead of others. Let's flip this analogy. What if instead of a thousand frozen embryos, it was a thousand cancer patients in the final moments of life? They're dying. They will die. And I have a choice to save a thousand frozen embryos or a thousand cancer patients in their final moments of life. Does that change our intuitions a little bit? Yes, it does. I'm going to save the one most likely to survive. And the reason I save the six-year-old girl is because her survival chances are better. It's going to be very tough to save those embryos. I save the six-year-old. It doesn't mean I'm making a value judgment on the embryos. And it's certainly not going to just intentionally slitting or, or, or justify intentionally slitting their throats. At best, this is a question about who we ought to save. Um, and I think we got to be very careful at saying that just because pro-lifers might act inconsistent with their stated view, you've therefore refuted their argument. The pro-life argument put in a syllogism is very simple. It's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. That's promise or premise one. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore, abortion's wrong. You can't refute that syllogism by simply saying pro-lifers don't always act consistent with it. Even if they were right that we're inconsistent, they haven't refuted our, our actual argument. Yeah. So so Cam mentioned uh, some of the arguments that we see on our, our Facebook yeah. page, and I've seen variations of Judith Jarvis Thompson's arguments uh, all over uh, social media as well. And as we see the evolution of the internet, the evolution of social media, the evolution, as it were, of the public square, even like our, our goal is to con continually uh, inform people that we got to return to the original public square, which is having face-to-face mm -hmm. -face conversations with people on the streets. Um, but what we've seen is that the public square more and more has become online conversations uh, about particular topics. Now, as, as, as a guy who teaches apologetics uh, on, on the pro-life issue, what are your thoughts or suggestions for online engagement on the controversial topic of abortion? Do, do apologetics change at all? Do we use the same apologetics? Like, what are some ways that we can navigate our way through these conversations? Well, I think if you were to sit us all down uh, in a panel discussion and the moderator were to ask us, how many people's minds have you changed on Twitter? Uh, or Facebook on this issue, we'd all be sporting big fat zeros for the most part, uh, at least that we're aware of. So what I think you do is you aim for giving a nugget that's thoughtful, that pebble in the shoe, or 
you post something that's going to reawaken people's intuitions. To the extent you can get away with that without being censored, uh, you should try to do that. Uh, because I think it's very difficult. Uh, social media by its medium is not a place for deep thought. People just are reactionary, they're inflammatory, and it's very difficult to engage there. I'm with you. I think we're going to have to get back to face-to-face -to -face presentations as soon as we can get past all the COVID stuff that's going on. Uh, we're going to have to do that. We're going to have to go back to the streets, go back to engaging people uh, in person, because number one, the online forums are going to be more and more censoring pro-life views. We already see it happening. So we're not going to be able to get our message out in full on those forums. We're going to have to go back to the streets. Yeah, that's that's really good. And again, the temptation is to see someone's mind change to 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 share a whole bunch of links that we want them to read and 45 minute videos that we want them to watch from our favorite apologist, Scott Klusendorf. But that's that's extremely yeah. wise advice there. Now, a, a few a few weeks ago, we had a conversation with good Seth Clare of Created Equal. And uh, yeah, yeah, he is. We had a, a great chat with him. And we this was before we knew the outcome of the election. Mm -hmm. Um, because the, the votes had been cast, but we didn't know what was happening yet. Um, but now that we're in a little bit different position, I mean, in five days from the recording, um, what we'll be seeing the swearing in of Joe Biden, what would you say? So we talked about the, the extremely pro-abortion stance of the Democratic Party, their commitment and, and values, in a sense, to, to push abortion as much as possible. What are some of the moves that the pro-life movement needs to make? Um, and and for people who are listening, regular lay people with with very little political influence um, and perhaps not the best public speaking skills or don't have the audience, um, like what are the moves that we need to do? What can we do as we navigate our way forward through this very pro-abortion presidency? Yeah, keep in mind that our game plan is survival, not immediate victory. It's amazing to me the pro-life movement has lived this long, given every cultural institution in America is against us. Uh, and even the ones that aren't overtly against us are often silent or refuse to speak up on this issue, like many of our churches and Christian institutions we've talked about. So number one goal, keep our message out there. In the daily conversations you have with people, you've got to keep contending earnestly for the faith. Keep def defending it, keep uh, arguing for it, and keep putting those pebbles in their shoes and keep exposing them to the imagery of what abortion is to keep it alive in their moral intuition universe. Uh, right now, we're in the fight to stay alive. Uh, that's where we are. I have disagreed for years with pro-life leaders who said, we're on the verge of ending abortion. Your generation's going to end abortion in our lifetime. They have no idea what they're talking about. And they're giving a false promise to people. Right now, we got to stay alive. And it's going to get worse. Uh, the states, uh, we're about to get hammered. Joe Biden, on day one, will reverse the Mexico City policy and use taxpayer money to fund abortion worldwide. That's going to happen within an hour of him being sworn in. We're going to see the Equality Act ram through, which is going to make it illegal to speak about anything the left finds offensive. Uh, even our churches are going to be impacted with this. Uh, you're going to see a domestic terror bill passed that if you're affiliated with any pro-life organization, you might very well get thrown on a no-fly list and not be allowed to travel. I mean, all this is coming down. And it may be a while before the courts toss some of this. I think the current federal courts will, thanks to Donald Trump, appointing a lot more 
uh, federal judges than we've seen before. But it's going to be a rough, turbulent uh, ride. And my fear is, I could be wrong here, it's too early to know, but my fear is that the Republican brand has suffered a catastrophic hit since the election. And you have Republicans now divided the, what I will call the wacko fringe that is seeing a conspiracy under every rug, who sat out the election in Georgia and handed it to two pro-abortion senators. Uh, amazing. And you got, I mean, knuckleheads like Lynn Wood and others saying that everything's a conspiracy. I got news for you. We lost the election. There was no conspiracy. We just lost. And I think we lost on worldview terms, not conspiratorial terms. And the reality is the vast majority of Canadians do not agree with you that abortion is wrong. And the vast majority of Americans do not agree with me that abortion is wrong. Let's be honest about where we're at. This is what's going on. And the sooner we're honest about it, and the sooner we admit we got an uphill fight, maybe we can get to work doing what will lead to long-term change decades from now. Yeah, and that, that long-term change, we often talk about it in Canada. I'm sure that a, a similar conversation goes in America about the three arms of the pro-life movement, the pastoral arm, the political mm -hmm. arm, and that prophetic educational arm, mm -hmm. and how it, it's not going to be useful for the next four years for us to just... Um, complain in our caverns and and basements and whatnot about the political result and hope and pray that somehow next election cycle this is going to be different how do we actually impact the election next time apart from crying about um perceived um conspiracy theories my, my colleague jonathan um wrote a great article about how clearly these people know something that the trump appointed judges and mike pence and countless others um have have no idea about yeah that maybe maybe just a comment on on that kind of interwoven role of the prophetic and the political arms of the pro-life movement and how we actually have to work together if we want to see political change we need to achieve educational change if we want to see more votes being cast for pro-life policies we need more people wanting pro-life policies mm -hmm. and how that actually manifests itself in america in canada and around the world i guess yeah, we do. In fact, the day after the Georgia runoff, where we lost two Senate seats and put the, the Senate in control of rabid pro-abortionists, I got on a plane and I flew to Dallas and I spoke to 800 high school students. Uh, my motto is this, just do the next thing you can to save lives. Just do the next thing you can and try to make it meaningful. In my case, I have a platform to get into schools. I'm going to keep doing that. Nothing changes for me. Uh, abortion wasn't going to go away in Donald Trump's tenure, whether it was four years or eight years. So I still got to do my job and I'm going to keep doing my job. Uh, and I think a lot of pro-lifers give up. They get discouraged. Nope, get up, go do the next thing you can to save lives. If that means talking to 12 people at your church, do it. If that means talking to your home study group, do it. If that means holding a Zoom call with uh, students in your church because the youth pastor agreed to let you talk to them, do it. Uh, you can't just give up. Uh, it's often said that politics is downstream from culture. That's true, but it's also true that, that culture is downstream from politics. They mutually influence each other. So we've got to be working all of these at the same time, but we can't give up on the cultural side of it just because we lost temporarily on the political side of it. We've got to keep being faithful. It's important to highlight one of the things you just said, which was keep bringing the message of abortion to people. 
um, keep highlighting yeah. to people precisely what abortion is. I mean, that's what we're talking about. It's not just, you know, um, some worldview issue somewhere up in the clouds, but it's the, the real destruction of real human beings. Now, Scott, that's right. Scott, as, as we slowly wrap things up, um, you so like I said, I, I joined the movement in 2014. Um, which is not that long ago. Um, you said you first were got involved and convicted to join in 1990. Now, for, for some of us who've been involved in the movement uh, fighting abortion, we recognize it's a spiritual battle. It, it takes an emotional toll, and uh, it's pretty easy to get burnt out. I've been burnt out once. I don't know about Cam or, or some of my other colleagues. Um, but for someone who's been around for the, the, the length of time that you've been around in the pro-life movement, could you give some some tips, as it were, uh, on how we can fight, continue to fight consistently and remain steadfast and uh, and keep that goal, uh, you know, focused ahead of us. Scotch and cigars. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> You'll edit that out. But, uh, that. <laughs> well, here's how we stay engaged and here's how we um, don't lose sight. Number one, let's do a little bit of biblical history here. God told the prophet Jeremiah, to testify against child sacrifice. And then God gave him this daunting announcement. No one is going to listen to you. But that did not relieve Jeremiah of his responsibility to proclaim God's truth. Whether we appear to be winning or not, we have a responsibility to be a faithful witness for the lives of the unborn. And whether we're winning culturally or not, has no bearing on what our obligations are. We don't pre- we don't proclaim truth because it's popular. We proclaim truth because it's the right thing to do. So that's the first thing. Let's keep our focus here on what the moral foundation is for our advocacy. The other thing that needs to happen is I think there needs to be a stronger building of vocational friendships. And let me explain what I mean by that. During the 80s and 90s, uh, vocational friendships were poo-pooed. We were told we had to become authentic. You had to get with someone, and until you really knew their deepest secrets and their deepest, darkest uh, temptations, you really weren't having fellowship. You were just surface level. That's a bunch of uh, hooey. The reality is we need vocational friendships where like-minded people encourage one another, enjoy hanging out together, have fellowship together, uh, go to each other's events to support one another. And these vocational friendships are powerful at keeping you in the game. And uh, you don't feel alone then. And we need to get away from this uh, psychology that says the only thing that matters is if you know everything about a person. That's, that's nonsense. Uh, learn to be a person who hangs out with like-minded persons and be intentional about it. There's nothing wrong with that. And if deeper conversations come about, so be it. But I have often found that the deepest conversations begin with vocational friendship and camaraderie. And that's why we feel the freedom to be more open, because we're with like-minded people. I joke that I have more friend, hang, or uh, let me back up, I joke that I often have more friends and more fun working with people who disagree with me theologically, but who agree with me on pro-life than I do people who I agree with theologically who have no interest in the pro-life issue. Now, that doesn't mean I think my pro-life position is contingent on 
uh, somebody's theology. Uh, it's not. And it doesn't mean that I think my theological positions don't matter. Yes, they do. And I'm prepared to defend them if I must. But there's a certain camaraderie that comes. Uh, I've joked that I love to ride the Catholic bus to pro-life events rather than the Lutheran one because the Catholic one is more fun. <laughs> um, you know, that, that doesn't mean that I, I am now becoming a Catholic. It just means I think you guys uh, know how to enjoy these events. You've been at it longer than us. And uh, I enjoy it. There's a certain camaraderie with that. And I think that kind of friendship is going to be essential moving forward. And I'm so glad that you bring up that that idea of friendship. Uh, so often we we talk, and and you mentioned before that that effective social reformers are seldom liked. We often say this line: if you don't join the pro life movement to make friends, but it generally happens along the way. Some of my closest friends, like you said, are people who, in in other contexts, I never would have come in contact with. I, I think of Jonathan Van Maren, a great great friend of mine. He works uh, with us yeah, here. Phenomenal. Uh, Jonathan doesn't have a single athletic bone in his body. Like I, I can't talk about a single sport with him. I can't talk about um, many of my research passions in biology and genetics and whatnot. I, I have very little appreciation for polit uh, for politics and history, especially when I got involved in the movement. And yet, mm -hmm. over the last ten years, this incredible friendship. Same thing goes with Peter and I, though we do have sports in common, which is lovely. Um, and yeah. so, a, a question that I, I love to throw to you. So last week on the program, we had Stephanie Gray Connors, and Stephanie Gray for me was probably my my primary mentor coming into the mm -hmm. movement. She was the one who first brought me into CCBR. She um, had a, a pivotal role in the internship the first few years I worked for CCBR. You, uh, and she mentioned in the show that you were one of her mentors. She attended the, the conference, I believe it was in New Jersey in, in 1999 or something like that, that you gave and that you were a mentor for her coming into the pro-life movement. I'm, I'm curious, who would you um, kind of talk about as a mentor for Scott Klusendorf coming into the pro-life movement. How does this um, kind of generational train go back and back? Who, who was it that really mentored you towards the, the incredible pro-life advocate that you are now? Well, there's one person who is uh, certainly in the number one spot, and that is Greg Cunningham. Uh, without him, I'm not in this movement. Let's just cut right to the chase. Uh, even today, I will find myself when I am in a situation automatically going into Cunningham mode. And you just pick that up hanging around people. There's an intuitive thing you catch that you know what the right thing is to do because you caught it hanging around a mentor. So Greg is just phenomenal. Another guy that was huge for me was Greg Kokel. Greg Cunningham gave me the courage and the framework for talking about this issue. Greg Kokel helped me refine my apologetics tactics to uh, be effective on a broader front. So both men were just absolutely crucial uh, for me and both remain uh, so today. I still look to them for uh, advice and uh, am happy to hear it from them when they give it. Uh, it's very helpful to have mentors like that. And then there are other kinds of mentors though. There are people you can learn from through reading that you will never meet. Uh, you know, people talk about C.S. Lewis being a mentor to them. I understand what they're talking about. Absolutely. Uh, for me, I think of guys, uh, Catholic thinkers like Patrick Lee, Robert George, Hadley Arcus. Uh, these are guys that uh, have profoundly impacted me through their ideas. I'll probably never meet them. Uh, Patrick Lee is a friend. So that with the exception of him, I, I doubt I'm going to spend any time hanging out uh, smoking a pipe with Robbie George as much as I would enjoy that. I doubt I'm going to meet Hadley Arcus 
But I love these guys for what they've done to help me think and formulate my arguments. So don't make the mistake of thinking you have to have a, a close personal relationship to be mentored. Be mentored. Mentoring can happen on a couple of different levels. You need to read smart people, and that, that will help you uh, in your growth. Gotcha. The only thing I'm going to say before Peter jumps in to ask uh, to start wrapping us up here, one way to actually meet those mentors is to start doing pro-life work. Um, 10 yeah. years ago, I, I started reading Scott Klusendorf. 10 years ago, I read Tactics by Greg Kokel. Um, 10 years ago, I started reading more and more of these books. And now it is an incredible joy to be able to talk with Scott Klusendorf for like an hour and a half here. <laughs> and, and I've met Greg Kokel on a couple of occasions. Um, I, I yep. can't say that he would pick me out from a, a crowd at all, but it is just so cool to be able to meet some of these incredible right. mentors and whatnot. And so if you want a shot at meeting some mentors, I mean, it's tricky to meet C.S. Lewis, um, yeah. at, at least in the, in the near future, I suppose. In this life, yeah. Um, but mm -hmm. um, if you want to meet people like Scott, if you want to meet people like Greg Kokel or Jonathan Van Maren or countless others, get involved in the movement. It will exponentially increase the odds of that happening. Peter, bring us home. Well, I'm going to say one more thing on that line. If uh, Look, if you're a single guy and you want to meet uh, outstanding women of character who also tend to be pretty good looking, uh, why are you not in the pro-life movement? I mean, I do not understand that at all. Uh, and, you know, someone might say, well, that's, that's a bad motivation for getting involved. Uh, first of all, I'll take help from anybody, whatever your motivation is. But secondly... Uh, where do you want to meet good women? In a bar? How about, let, let's go somewhere where you can have a worldview agreement. And uh, anyway, you can edit that out if you want, but I had to toss <laughs> that in. Not a chance. Not a chance. That's staying in there. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. If you have any um, quabbles on that, please check out our constant pictures of our internship teams and our staff teams, and it will completely affirm that sentiment from Scott. <laughs> it actually reminds me of... Uh an abortion awareness project that we did in Florida. I can't remember what university or what, what year, but I do remember one of the, the university students coming up to, to the display and being like, um, I, I'm just curious, man, like how come all the girls on your side of the fence are so cute and the ones on my side aren't that cute? And uh, all I could do is just chuckle. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I, I certainly do affirm what you said. Truth, goodness, and beauty, I think. There, Truth, goodness, and beauty. They go. all go together. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Scott, you run the Life Training Institute. Uh, it is an organization that seeks to equip Christians to persuasively communicate the pro-life message to those around them, to shape the culture, and to see real cultural change. How can our listeners find you? How can they get in contact with you, um, perhaps to get you to speak or one of your colleagues to speak, um, or just to learn more about the Life Training Institute? Well, they could go to ProLifeTraining.com. That's the easiest way to get in touch with us, ProLifeTraining, all one word, .com. And uh, you're right. We have a team of speakers. There's myself. There's Megan Allman. There's Seth Gruber, Janique Stewart. Uh, listen, any one of those people uh, will hit a home run for you. Uh, they're all phenomenal in what they do. And uh, they are effective at communicating their pro-life uh, position and great at equipping others. So if they go to ProLifeTraining.com, they can get in touch with our organization. And if they want to have uh, us come speak, they can certainly uh, make an inquiry about that there. And I assume they have the boot camp uh, speaker training from Scott Klusendorf, as you were mentioning earlier, um, You know, having them answer all the tough questions that you have. So great speakers from the Life Training Institute. Go find them at ProLifeTraining.com. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. 
Oh, thank you, guys. It was great to hang out with my Canadian brethren. Yeah, we were so glad to have you. All right, everyone. That was Scott Klusendorf of the Life Training Institute. You can find them at ProLifeTraining.com. That's ProLifeTraining.com. As I mentioned, that will be going in the show notes as well. Cam, give me your thoughts on this conversation that we just had with Scott. Oh, man. This was one of the most fun conversations I've had in a long, long time. I, I have only met Scott on a couple of occasions, and yet this felt like old friends, just like lounging in a basement on a leather couch, just talking about... The coolest things that, that I've heard. This was so much fun, Peter, and it was such a blessing to have Scott be able to join us and share his wisdom, his experience, um, and also his ideas for moving forward. It was a ton of fun, um, and I am totally going to be checking out everything that he said all over again. I'm going to be putting a, a play on this episode again just so that I can soak up as much as I can from Scott, a, a true pro-life hero, a true mentor of mine um, that I've now been blessed to, to spend an hour and a half chatting with. It's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's something I'm going to do as well. I'm going to listen to this again. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a young guy in the movement and there, there was a lot there for us to learn from. Um, and I, I encourage each and every one of you to do that as well. Um, like I mentioned in the interview that we had with him, we're not just talking about some worldview issue, uh, although worldview issues are of vital importance, but we are talking specifically about the destruction of young human beings in the womb. And we need to be equipped as best we can to defend the pro-life position, which in turn defends and protects and gives dignity to vulnerable pre-born children. So check it out again. All right, guys, as we as we conclude a few things here, I don't know if you've seen, but we, we came out with a new series called Humans of the Pro-Life Movement. Two episodes have been released so far. You can find them on your podcast catcher, but these episodes we've also video recorded, so they are on YouTube. Thank you so much to our good production guy, Maddie, for the great and tremendous and good quality work that he has been doing preparing these. Um, so, so go check them out. We have conversations with activists, the defenders of the defenseless, the unsung heroes of the pro-life movement, because we, because we want to showcase the incredible women and men from around the world who are speaking up for preborn children. And, uh, and then in a, a few weeks' time, um, we, we hope you're excited for this. We are ex excited for this. We're coming out with an episode of uh, uh, the first episode of an, another new series called The Pulse, where we will be sharing with you pro-life news from around the world, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything else, because we want you to hear pro-life news from a pro-life perspective. We need to take away the storytelling of our news from those who hate our worldview and love the destruction of preborn children. So check that out. We will most certainly let you know when that comes around. Find us on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. If you're getting rid of those because of the things that have been happening lately, you can also find us on MeWe or on Gab or on Rumble.com or some of these other platforms. We were on Parler, but unfortunately, what's Parler these days? Um, they no longer exist. Um, um, but when they exist again, we will be back on their platform. So go, go check us out on social media so that you can uh, stay up to date with what we're doing. You can also find us on ProLifeGuys.com, our website, and sign up for our monthly update so that you can stay in touch with what we are doing. And then lastly, as I promised at the beginning, 
We have a Patreon page. So if you want to financially get involved with the work that we're doing, financially partner with us so that the work can continue and so that we can continue with the projects that we have in mind and see some of the exciting things that we have planned come to fruition, check us out, patreon.com backslash guys. There are some great perks, some great merch, some great scotch glasses and mugs and signed books. And uh, you can uh, get some exclusive episodes where you can ask us anything and be part of um, some some invitational conversation uh, dates with us as well as the Pro-Life Guys. So go check that out, patreon.com backslash Pro-Life Guys. Cam, this has been a long episode, um, so we should uh, we should wrap this up. Thank you so much for everyone who has stayed with us uh, up until this point. And Cam, I know you don't like feeling like a broken record, but you have a call for our listeners at the end of every every episode, and it would be unwise for us to pass that this time. So please, my friend, do share your call for those listening to this episode. Call to action, have a conversation about abortion, and let us know how it went. This entire program, this entire platform of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, Humans of the Pro-Life Movement, coming up uh, the pulse, Everything that we're doing is trying to equip you with the tools that you need to have compelling and compassionate conversations about abortion. If you're not having conversations about abortion, then we are not doing our job as well as we should be. And so please, please, please have conversations with your friends, with your family members, with members of your, of your community about abortion. And let us know how they go. If you get stuck, if you get tongue-tied, that is all good. As Scott Klusendorf said, so much of what we are trying to do is we are trying to put pebbles in people's shoes. You don't need to be the be-all, end-all. You don't need to transform everything they've ever thought they'd known. You just need to be a witness. And an incredible way that you can do that is through the use of abortion victim photography, because as Peter mentioned during the episode, abortion protests itself when it is put on display have a conversation about abortion, show the truth of what abortion does to a preborn child so together we can change minds, save lives, and transform our culture. Thank you, sir. That was uh, that was great. Let us know what you think, guys, uh, on our website, prolifeguys.com, or on social media. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you tune in again next week. 